0: People need ordering 12 Rules.
1: Hello, welcome to 12 Rules for What. My name is Sam Moore. I'm Alex Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> you were very keen to say your son any other day, and now it's uh, become more kind of desultory. Hello, uh, um we are today talking about the second part of the three parts of our book, past, present, future, in that order, like time itself. Um, and what we're doing is we're, we're going to talk through the three chapters of this, this section. What's the book
0: called, Sam, and when's it coming out? Uh,
1: the book is called The Rise of Ecofascism, and it is out right now, whenever you're listening to this, if you are in the UK or Europe. If you're in America, you're going to have to wait a little longer. It's coming out in April, unless you're listening to this after April, in which case it's out now.
0: Oh, unless you want to pay the exorbitant postage and... Buy it from the European distribution. You can
1: do that. You can do that. Yes, um, or you get an ebook, probably. I assume so. Ebooks are transnational. That's that's yeah. That's uh, th- th- no borders, no uh, etc. Um, so we're talking about the second part of the book today, and the, the difficult thing about talking about the second part of the book is it's three chapters long because the second part is on the present and and. And of course, the present is, present is more known and it's more complicated um, than we can speculate that the future might be with any uh, utility. So, the three parts of this section are what? What are the three chapters that we talk about?
0: Um, so we talk about what well, we do, our kind of the, the, the well-trodden division we've we've established now between the governmental far-rights, uh, movementist far-rights, and I suppose violent far-rights, or the I've always had a bit more of a, a difficult kind of grasp on that category. Like I suppose, ter- far right terrorism, far right violence. Um,
1: yes, yeah, which so is not actually like a political yeah.
0: form. It's a it's an action, which is, makes it more, a bit mm. more difficult. But I, I do think it is a
1: useful uh, distinction. It is. It's also can kind of somewhat kind of um, historically complicated, of course, because. What we're pointing to is that there needs to be these three parts. There needs to be some sort of state, some sort of racial mass movement, some sort of extrajudicial killing or violence. Um, And the form it takes right now, because that that aspect, that last extrajudicial violence aspect is in some ways pushed out of politics, because that, and that was not the case, for example, in the 1930s, right? So because it's now being kind of pushed out of politics, at least in Europe, at least in most places around the world, the form that it takes is terrorism. Right, but it could be another form. It could have, it could have a form of, um, you know, militia violence. It could have a form of uh, different kinds of kind of paramilitary violence. It could have a form of a, essentially a kind of a secret police-style violence. Right, these are all possible forms of that extrajudicial component of the of of the of the far right. It just happens to be that in this moment, because it's pushed out of the state, pushed out of civil society, it takes the form of terrorism.
0: Yes, yeah, so actually, that's something I wanted to start with, and I, had, I suppose I wanted to pose a question to you. Um, and in the start of our episode on on the history of far right ecologism, we start with, and I asked you about this in the last episode, uh, colonialism and why we, we we start with that. And in in this section, we start with neoliberalism, and in fact, neoliberalism is suffused throughout. You know, discussions of neoliberalism is suffused without throughout the, the, the section. Why does neoliberalism feature so strongly in the, in the section when we are talking about um, far right contemporary far right ecologism
1: today? So neoliberalism is the background condition, and it's also the, condition- the point. Out, much like colonialism is in the history, the precisely. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, um, because it produces exactly this split. It produces a split between the government uh, or the state and uh, political movements. Right. We've seen this across neoliberalism that political movements are pushed out of politics. That there is no longer a kind of active polis and a kind of active uh, civil life. Um, that can challenge or really engage with the state really at all. And that's the same on the far right in the same way that it's, it's happening on the left. With things like Trump, the alt-right, you know, the rise of uh, the RSS in India um, with kind of the complicated set of movements that happened around Bolsonaro, for example. These things are changing uh, and there's kind of a, a fragmentary process of, of kind of breaking out of that neoliberal um, distinction between the, the state on one hand, politics proper, and then civil society, which is kind of depoliticized. There's a kind of complicated set of transformations that are happening in that, and that's one of the things we're talking about when we're thinking about the return of something like fascism. Because just to kind of rehash, fascism is defined by, in our account, the coordination of these three parts. So they all have the same aims in mind: the state, the racial mass movement, extrajudicial violence. And therefore, as they're coming back together, that means that we're kind of heading back towards a situation where it's possible that the um, the far right will assemble in a kind of a fascist form. But we talked about these kind of things in, in the previous episode. Now let's talk about what the uh, the kind of the meat of the book is, right? Not the kind of abstract stuff about what fascism is, but the kind of the meat of the book, which is, of course, climate change and the far-rights responses to climate change or kind of around the, the field of climate change. And in the book, we make the point that previous accounts of the far-right in climate change, so for example, Andreas Malm and, and Zekin Collective's book, um, which is excellent, I have to say, uh, really great book, focuses on the, um, the, co- the, the correlation between, on the one hand, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the overall global average temperature, right? which is this, this kind of this graph that we're all very well aware of. The hockey stick graph kind of shoots up in the last 50 years. Um, you know, we, we're all very well aware of this correlation. But for the far right, saying what the environmental crisis is is not actually so simple. And so I think it's important and incumbent upon us to try and look at the way in which aspects of the far right have a kind of account of what the crisis in nature means, that is not a climate crisis, but just a crisis in nature in general, what their accounts are in such a way as we can, oppose, we can point out the ways in which they are inadequate to being accounts of, of climate change and the severity that that particular problem brings with it. So it's not that the far right is kind of like ignoring environmentalism or don't have a nature politics, or don't have an account of ecology. They do. But those accounts of ecology are, in almost every single case, completely inadequate to address the real existing problem of climate change, which is, of course, because of deeply rooted economic interests that their members and their, their ideologies have. Yeah, and um,
0: a part of that comes from like the kind of misapplication of different scales of nature, um, we've observed in the book that across all three aspects of the far right, which we go through, dealing with nature on its true scale, on its proper scale, is a problem that all, all these kind of of the far right come up against. And then no one can, like, sense a, a, a planet in crisis, a planetary system in crisis, which is ultimately the unit, the most useful unit we can talk about, you know, the whole system, um, you know, taken together. And what we find is that with the far right, there are like misapplications scale all the way through. And these are different kinds of scales. So there's oftentimes they're very minute, Um, sometimes like a national landscape which is under threat from pollution or from, you know, overpopulation or whatever, or even down to one particular animal. You know, like one of my favorite words I kind of accounted in writing this book is called, you know, charismatic megafauna. That yeah, kind of that's a great way. really like saying, which basically just means the animal and which, with which the country most, is most associated. So, for example, in America, the um, bald, bald bald eagle. Um, in the UK, we have the shitty red squirrel. I don't know. In France, they have something I can't remember. So, uh, and in, in in that case, climate the climate crisis or the environmental crisis means that that particular animal, that particular landscape, which are stand-ins for the nation. Uh, is is under threat, is is being corrupted, is being polluted. Um, And and, and that kind of engenders certain things like, for example, the Rassemblement National in France. They're quite happy to export um, polluting industries out of France while still reaping the benefits of that as long as it's happening somewhere else. On the other end of the scale, we have this kind of much more metaphysical, much more esoteric, mystical almost crisis of nature as a whole, as a kind of spiritual relationship to a land, as, as, a, as, as a crisis of a kind of a spiritual connection to, you know, uh, you know, man as an ideal's relationship with nature as an ideal, which is, you know, w- worth exploring philosophically, I think, conceptually the nature, man's relationship to nature, humanity's kind of development within nature, but does not address on this planetary scale um, actual existing breakdown of of climatic systems, which we are, you know, seeing all of the, the consequences we're seeing all over the world, and in fact, and kind of in between that, also there is one last scale, or at least one last misapplication, I would say, because is, uh, is that the climate crisis is in fact a racial crisis. The the opening gambit of the of the of the chapter on deadly ecofascist violence is is a discussion of the Christchurch shooter's manifesto, which we have. You know, when when the shooting happened, we had a kind of mini episode that came out fairly quickly afterwards. It was quite, you know, we were quite quick on it uh, discussing the manifesto and 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 the tropes within it and and what he was saying. Almost like I had a, a listener describe it to me as like you were doing a literary analysis of the manifesto, and it was helpful for me to understand what was going on. And the manifesto opens with. A kind of repeated exhortation about it being about the birth rates but white birth rates and how this was actually the racial crisis uh, the environmental crisis um for the christian shooter the environmental crisis came because white people were inherently better at managing the nature and because they were dying out that meant that and and inferiorists were outbreeding that meant that the planet was doomed not that there was these like fundamentally fundamentally white structures and institutions that were driving this crisis
1: I've got a question for you now so you said the planet is the correct scale to kind of think about I agree that's a, that's a great spatial scale What is the correct temporal scale do you think like how far back should we understand the crisis when does it begin what is it what's a feature of it you know and so on Whoa. so come kind of like a true historian do you want to answer that question <laughs> no I don't know I think it's a genuinely
0: vexed question. I think um, I think if you took an overly scientific kind of approach, scientific approach to that, you'd probably start it when the emissions started creeping up and the the world started heating. You would identify industrialization. I would put it a bit further back, like we do, to the kind of systems of domination that were instituted under you know global colonialism. Um, and it. I mean, it's it's in within that that the contemporary moment exists, and we, we still cannot escape that. So, I don't know. I would have a good I don't have a good
1: answer. And that's a good answer, and that's a that's a perfectly good answer. So, so there there is one response that the far right is making at the governmental level to climate change, not as a crisis of excess carbon or excess you know methane gas in the atmosphere, but as a crisis of a kind of social crisis, which is securitization as a move on the far right amongst Bolsonaro, amongst you know, Salvini in Italy, uh, amongst the Australian government, um, you know, and so on. All these different parts of the far right on the global scale have responded to the climate crisis by strengthening borders, by trying to militarize society, by trying to push securitization through by making it more and more and more difficult for people to move around when they need to in response to climate disasters, which are triggered not by the people who are moving overwhelmingly, but are triggered by uh, people, you know, in the global north uh, uh, producing emission, emissions that then have these you know, cascading um, loops through the through the climate system. So it's so a response is made, some sort of response is made, but it's made at not at the level of a um, at, at the right level, not at the right kind of phenomena level, but at the level of a securitization of society. Then the second chapter of the book, when we, talk, we and in 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 this in in this chapter, we talk about you know. The Indian far right. We talk about Modi. We talk about Bolsonaro. We talk about Duterte in the Philippines. We talk about um, you know Italy in France uh, and and as Alex said earlier, the National. We talk about uh, Trump. We talk about Bolsonaro. You know, we talk about all different kind of aspects of the far right as they currently are playing out in power or close to power. In the case of yep, France, India is very particularly important because India is not only the place where there's a. Complicated convergence of things like developmentalist ideas. That is, uh, and 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 almost developmentalist rejection of climate change mitigation, which is uh, the argument is very simple. Um, India has lots of very poor people, therefore it requires development to become rich. Therefore, we need India needs to burn fossil fuels in order to. Um, in order to become rich, because that is how all countries that have ever become rich should have become rich, right? That's a very simple argument, and in some ways, it's a very compelling argument. Obviously, any notion of climate justice cannot be satisfied with the idea that people, um, you know, hundreds of millions of people would simply remain in poverty, um, or that they would uh, that, that their life conditions would not improve, their ability to you know access, for example, healthcare. Would not improve because you know the planet just can't afford it, right? This is just you know an abhorrent view of of what climate justice would entail. So we're not arguing for that at all. And in fact, Modi and the the the, the Indian government in shredding what we call the, the, the well, not what we call, but what is called the deliberative layer of the state. That is the the layer of the state in which people who are living in poverty are able to make their voices heard to the state. That is, they're able to intervene on developmentalist projects So say, this will destroy my local environment. This will prevent me from accessing this resource which I rely on to live, which is, of course, a very common um, occurrence when things happen in you know, forests and so on. Which, again, you know, to kind of just integrate the entire book into, into one thing, concern over access to forests and the racialization of access to forests and the domination that is enforced upon people living in poverty about access to forests it was a major, major, major concern of British imperial rule in India. So there's a kind of a full circle here. In a sense, like Modi, the Modi government, by destroying this deliberative aspect of the state that allows the poor to say, you can't you know, build a factory in this forest, I need it to live. you know, These kind of things were put in place after the Bhopal disaster, which you know, thousands of people died, um, which is in some ways like another form of kind of uh, neocolonialism. Those aspects of it, by being shredded, completely destroy any kind of, uh, aspect that development, kind of broadly understood, economic development, broadly understood, any kind of aspect that that would have as a positive for, for people living in poverty, right? So there's not a sense that I think I think this argument is is true. There is a, there is a compelling argument here that India, you know, should be allowed to develop. Nevertheless, the way that the Modi government is going about it is exactly counterproductive to that exact thing. And so the argument is is know um, yeah, fallacious, doesn't make any sense in the particular case. The second section of this this, this uh, part of the book is about online far right movements. So tell us what is going on in this chapter. What kind of what are the kind of the the things we sketch out here, and who are we looking at? I mean,
0: it is, obviously it's not just online far right movements. So we've got Carter Pound, which is actually a very
1: real. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that and you want to hear the rest of this premium episode, then you can go over to our Patreon and subscribe for as little as two dollars a month. Of course. If you are interested in reading in much, much, much greater depth all the arguments that we've put forward in this episode and the previous one and the one afterwards, then you can go and buy *The Rise of Ecofascism* from any bookseller at all in the UK, and from April it'll be available in the US as well. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll see you soon. Twelve rules. <laughs>